0: Adam and Sarah and their family have been attending our church uh, since this summer. Uh, Adam has been a good friend of mine for quite a few years, about eight years, I guess is about how long we've known each other. He came to Grace Baptist in Newburgh about the same time that I came here uh, to Dayton First Baptist Church, which is how we got to know each other. And uh, over those times, it's been fun to be a fellow pastor with him, a fellow CV Northwest pastor with him. Uh, But much more importantly and significantly, certainly to me, is just the friendship that we've developed uh, over those years and the many hours that we've spent together just talking about life and ministry and all that stuff. Uh, In the last year, uh, Adam's ministry life has transitioned a bit. He's now teaching at Veritas and doing more than just teaching, but that's a big part of what he's doing. Uh, But uh, I told him when, when he made that transition that I was really more than happy to give him opportunity to preach from time to time, because that's just something pastors have a tough time not doing. And so that you don't only have to preach to your kids, we would love to have you come and and, uh, preach with us this morning. So Adam, please come share with us uh, from the words of Scripture what God has laid on your heart this morning for us.
1: Thank you, Matt. I uh, appreciate so much Matt's friendship over these years. Like he said, we came to the area both around the same time. My family came from Wyoming uh, and we settled and we just kind of, I remember one, the first conversation we really had was the fact that we weren't very far away from each other And We were in the parking lot of a church in Silverton and decided we should start getting together at some point, and it turned into uh, a wonderful friendship in which Matt is um, one of my best friends, and I appreciate him, and I appreciate his ministry here, Um, and and he's just been a a wonderful prayer partner, but also just an amazing friend um, and confidant and advisor for me throughout the years, and so I appreciate him, Um, and uh, we're just very blessed to have him in this church. And I do believe that if you're going to children's church, this is the time to Scoot, I just picked up the subtle, like, you know, that or everyone is already leaving before I even start talking. They're just like, all right, well, it's not Matt today. See ya. No, just kidding. So, I don't know about you guys, but I am very much ready for the election. Only for the fact that I could watch a TV program or a sporting event or even just a YouTube video or a music streaming service without hearing a political ad. Um, it's, I, I, every time anything comes on, we get to hear all about how either someone else is the most horrible human being on the planet, so don't vote for them, or that the person speaking is the best possible human being to vote for on the planet, and it just gets old. I don't know if you agree with me there or not, but it gets a little bit old. As, as a part of my job at Veritas, I do teach theology and humane letters, which is a fancy term for anything social studies related. And when the students are working quietly at, their, at, their, at the table um, or at their desks, I like just to play music in the background off of Pandora or whatever, but I always find myself diving across the room between songs, because I'm too cheap to pay for it, so I have the free version, and so in between the songs, you suddenly have commercials pop up, and so I'm diving to make sure we don't have political ads broadcasting across my classroom. It gets old, but I do understand it's necessary as a part of the political process for us to know who to vote for and what they stand for and all those kinds of things. Unfortunately, in my opinion, unfortunately, some of this use of this media has crept so much into the church that sometimes it's hard to figure out um, which church leaders nationally um, or worldwide are promoting the gospel and Jesus or promoting their own brand. When you have all of the different ways that we can use as amazing tools to, for good purposes, can sometimes be used for very selfish purposes, and it creates this conflict amongst even believers as to who am I promoting through this tool. Okay? I, I'm personally not on social media anymore because it about um, drove me crazy because I'm I have opinions, we're trying to stifle the opinions to maintain relationships, and I finally figured out I'm just happier if I'm not on it but I don't blame anybody who is on it because it is a wonderful way to stay in touch with family and friends that don't live nearby and, and things like that. So like, I was on Facebook. I know Facebook is like for old people now, um, and I mean old people meaning me. So if I talk to my students, they're like, well, you're old. That's why you talk about Facebook. Okay, well, there is more TikTok and other things that I swear I will never be on because first of all, my family alone will be like, you're on TikTok? Are you kidding? But there's all these means by which we eventually promote ourselves, Right. Even if, and in the Christian world, and in Christian leadership, you can accidentally start promoting yourself and your brand or your book or your program or your series more than you eventually or should be promoting Christ. I mean, what is it called on? If you have a Twitter account, the people that subscribe to your Twitter page are called what? Anybody know? Followers. Okay, so they're following you. Okay, I don't even know what they call them on TikTok, so I'm not even gonna. I don't even bother asking them to tell me now. You can tell me afterwards, but. It's often self-promotion. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Oh, that was good. But, but here's my point. Today, again, I'm going to walk you through someone that I think is a great example for us as we follow Jesus. I firmly believe, as you hear every week with the children's um, story, that the whole story of the Bible is about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. And I want to look at a character today who I think went through a little bit of the same process that we go through as we come to faith in Christ. And as we recognize who Christ truly is, what he's done for us, and then we make him known and we hopefully are releasing people to him, not bringing people to ourselves. And that character is John the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist is, we're not apples to apples like John the Baptist. We're not exactly the same, right? He had some unique ministry that was prophesied ahead of time and a unique role that he was fulfilling as the forerunner of Christ. We see that in Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5. We see it in Malachi both in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 where there's specific prophecies about an Elijah type who is going to come before the Messiah. And John the Baptist does this and fulfills this well. The thing that I appreciate in studying Jesus' relationship with John the Baptist is John the Baptist's process in which he goes about in his recognition of the Messiah and then his proclamation of salvation in Christ alone And then the third part of it that I find most fascinating, which I think is a wonderful lesson for anyone today, but especially if you're in leadership, which is we are releasing, hopefully, or pointing people away from ourselves to Jesus Christ. Because the first disciples of Jesus were actually disciples of John the Baptist, who left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. And that's so countercultural to us today but it's also countercultural to them at that time. We're gonna talk about why. So, the first thing that I just wanna look at is John the Baptist's process of understanding or discovering that Jesus is the Messiah. And that might be like an odd statement for you. If you can turn with me, please, to John chapter 1. We're gonna to be today in John chapter 1, 29 through 42. And I've called this increase, decreasing and increasing, and it's based on John, we'll read the passage in which he tells his disciples, I must decrease so that he may increase. And that's a lesson for all of us, is you, you mix the zeal of John the Baptist with the humility that John the Baptist showed in recognizing that this is all about Jesus. And our job is to imitate and be little Christs for everyone. And I think for everyone to see, and I think the Bible makes that clear. So I don't want us to to suddenly kind of transfer this and say, well, I should be like John the Baptist. We should strive to be like Christ. But I think we learn good examples from John the Baptist as he grows in Christ's likeness himself. Does that make sense? Hopefully nobody else knows, because then I don't know what to do next. Um, So the first thing I I just want to read to you, John chapter 1 And we're going to read, just for starters, verses 29 through 34. And we'll continue on um, a little bit later with the rest of the passage. But John chapter 1, verse 29, starts this way. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel." Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down to remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So I want to stop there for a moment. In seminary, we had we were given this, this project by a professor to write a A four part sermon series on some subject or character in Scripture. And I chose John the Baptist. And I came to this kind of shocking conclusion growing up in the church, going, I mean, being in church leadership even, I always just kind of assumed, even if it's pretty blatantly written in John, that John the Baptist, I mean, he's Jesus' cousin. He grew up kind of family relationships. He had to have known before Jesus showed up to baptize him that he was the Messiah and that this was the moment and some people do believe that that is the case and have other explanations for what this means and so if, if if this is like a realization to you today and i'm kind of going giving you something that you really might struggle with that john the baptist might not have known jesus was the messiah until baptizing him you're not alone and you might not be you might be right okay But I want to propose to you why I think, personally, John the Baptist didn't know exactly that Jesus was the Messiah. He might have had an inkling, but did not know for sure until the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Because the way the testimony is given here, John says a couple of different times that he didn't know that Jesus was indeed the Messiah until the Spirit confirmed it for him. And my question is, well, how do you not know until that point if you're actually related to Jesus that he is the Messiah? because if you look in Matthew you do have this passage you don't have to turn there i'm just going to summarize it for you but in Matthew 3:13 through 14 where when Jesus does arrive to be baptized does John the Baptist want to baptize him at first he says no he says i should be baptized by you not the other way around now that doesn't necessarily mean however that John the Baptist knew that Jesus was indeed the Messiah because if you grow up kind of around Jesus, and I don't know how much time they spent together. This wasn't like today you can up in your RV and go visit your cousin for a week and then run back. But they had to have known each other a little bit because Mary and Elizabeth had this close relationship. But I've always kind of joked about how like, difficult would it have been to be related to Jesus, especially if you're his brother or sister growing up, which he had family. Okay, we know he had brothers and sisters because the Bible says so, right? As... When you were a child growing up and you had a brother or sister, did you ever blame them for something that they did? Did you ever try to get them in trouble or not let them get away with something? Maybe you didn't make up a lie about them, but you for sure were going to make sure that they didn't get away with something they shouldn't have done, right? Can you imagine being like Jesus' brother or sister? You can't blame him for anything because we know scripturally he never sinned ever once. That would have driven me crazy as his sibling. I'm like, Jesus, no, he didn't do it. It was me. You just can't do that. So something about Jesus' character already resonated with John the Baptist when he showed up. So John the Baptist is baptizing primarily, we think, a Hebrew audience or a Jewish group of people as a recognition of the coming of the Messiah. Okay, And it's kind of a unique baptism. I'm not going to get all into it today. But it was one in which John the Baptist recognized his own sinfulness and struggle and then looked at Jesus and said, "Well, <laughs> we should switch places because I know you're better than I am. And he might have known because there's this, the, the, the story of when Mary visits Elizabeth and John the Baptist leapt inside Elizabeth's womb. Um, but I don't know what memories you have coming out of the womb. I don't have any. I don't know about you. So it's a little bit up for debate. But what John the Baptist says is that his, really his faith that Jesus is the Messiah came to him due to the work of the Holy Spirit. Which is, in essence, how we all are saved, right? On our own volition, we don't necessarily just one day pick up and say, you know what? I think Jesus is the option I'm going for, right? What we know is that he calls us into relationship with him through the Holy Spirit, right? And so you see the Spirit confirming for John the Baptist, whether John the Baptist thought he knew or already knew, but he says at least his confession here to the audience when they see Jesus. So he's already, the baptism is already done. Here comes Jesus. And whether there's sheep around and he says, hey, cool, there's, a, there's an illustration I can use. Or we're going to get into what the Lamb of God means in a moment. He chooses this moment to clarify that God made himself known in Jesus through confirmation at the baptism. And that is when I knew for sure. Here's the other reason why I think there's, there's, it's up for some, some um, discussion as to how sure John the Baptist was, because if you look in Matthew chapter 11, does John the Baptist ever later on have some doubts as to Jesus being the Messiah? A little bit, right? Because John the Baptist gets arrested, right, um, for speaking out against the king and his kind of scandal, and he gets arrested, and he sends the disciples that he still has following him to Jesus to say... Adam Fitch paraphrase, are you really the one, or should we be watching for somebody else? So my point with this first point about John the Baptist's kind of assurance in his faith is: I find comfort in the one who is prophesied about, who is coming to declare the coming of the Messiah, went through a faith process that we all go through when you come to faith in Christ. Now his was a little bit more blatant, right? I mean, voice from heaven. Visual Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus, and he was fulfilling prophecy himself. So he's unique in that way, yet he also had moments in which he had the Holy Spirit confirm for him, Jesus is the one. He is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. And he had moments in his life in which he went, is this really it or not? Have I been serving the true Messiah, or is there somebody else and I don't know if you've ever gone through that conflict within your own heart or mind. I think every believer goes through that at some point to become a, really a believer. You have to own your own faith. And working with students and children, whether it was in youth ministry or senior pastor ministry, you're now in a school, one of the things we try to do is prepare students when they hit that faith crisis to dive deep into the Bible because they've got to own it for themselves because nobody is saved just because mom and dad said they are. And I don't want to make that scary, but young people... Your faith in Christ is what saves you or does not. Not because mom and dad dragged you to church every week, when you, whether you wanted to go or not. There is no like attendance chart in heaven with stars on it saying, well, Adam went to church every day this year. He can come in. It's not how it works. It's through faith in Christ and Christ alone and who he truly is. Now, who is he truly? And this is where John the Baptist, in his fervor and in his zeal, gives a very compelling argument, probably not the right word to say it, but he expresses the true identity of Jesus Christ. So look back at our passage for a moment here in which he says, back at verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he says it again in verse 35, and we'll get to there in a little bit, but he says once again there, When he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Now, at this point in Jesus' very early ministry, he is making himself known in terms of going first to the Jews in Israel and showing them, in maybe some subtle ways and not so subtle when people are being risen from the dead or he's walking on water, but that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ. So this Lamb of God phrase should resonate with a very Jewish audience. If you go back through the Old Testament, we're going to take a quick like, run through the Old Testament, not the entire thing, because I don't want you to be like, the one time this guy talked, we got out at 1230. And so if I ever get to preach again, you'll be like, oh no, I should have brought a sack of lunch. But um, <laughs> as you look at the Lamb in Jewish history, you see going all the way back to Genesis, this idea of an innocent Lamb... Losing its life for the sake of the guilty. Now, I don't know if you go all the way back to Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve rebelled. Um, you see at the end of their discipline from God, you see as they exit the garden, the first death recorded in the Bible. Other than the spiritual death of Adam and Eve, right? They don't immediately physically die. They're going to, but you see that, that it's been, the death sentence has been laid upon them. But in God's grace, He expels them from the garden, but what does he do to cover their shame as they are being led out of the garden? Anybody know He kills an animal, right? Yeah, yeah, so I don't know if it was a lamb or not. We see lamb though coming up later in Genesis. but he sacrifices an innocent living being to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. don't overlook how this whole arc of the Bible fits together, and so an innocent being lost its life to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. But if you fast forward and you can turn there um, with me to, uh, to Genesis chapter 22. You'll recognize this story, likely, um, even maybe from the reference. But in Genesis chapter 22, you see this story. And i can get into the details of these stories I'm going to bring up. I'm just going to quickly read a passage and then keep moving as a part of it. But it's the famous story in Genesis chapter 22 of God testing Abraham and the faith of Abraham by commanding him to sacrifice Isaac. And one of the things I talk about with my students at Veritas is there's passages throughout the Old Testament that give you a preview of what is to come. And I think Genesis 22 is a preview of what is to come with Jesus at the cross, And I don't have time to go into all the amazing similarities between them. But what we see in the near sacrifice of Isaac is that where Isaac was spared at the last moment, Christ was not spared. Where the father of Isaac was about to sacrifice his own son and then did not have to, the heavenly father did not stop and sacrifice his one and only son for us. So you look at Genesis chapter 22, you see sometime later God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Now if you were to go over to Matthew chapter 3, which you don't do it right now, but later, look at the baptism of Jesus. Look at what God says from heaven about Jesus as he's being baptized. That this is my son whom I love. And we refer to Jesus all the time as God's one and only son, right, from John three sixteen. There's no accidents in the Bible. There's a reason this is written the way it's written. So God tells Abraham, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for a place God had told him about. On the third day... Now, a couple of things really quickly about this story that I find fascinating. First of all, as a child, I always imagined Isaac was like waddling up with dad as they're going to go up there and do the sacrifice. But what is Isaac able, old enough that he is able to do in this story? He's carrying the wood and the knife. Okay, Abraham is not a young buck at this point. Okay, he's pushing 100. Okay, we kind of believe that Isaac is teenage-ish in his age for the work that he's doing in this process. So, that begs the question, did Isaac willingly allow himself, eventually in this story, to nearly be sacrificed? Yes. I'm pretty sure that a 13 or 14-year-old could take a 100-year-old guy. Even just from squirreliness, he could squirm out of it and run, right? I mean, I would hope, and that's, I mean, Abraham's the most spry 100-year-old I've ever seen. Okay? So, Isaac is willingly carrying the wood that is going to be used to sacrifice him. Is there a New Testament character we know of on the way to his sacrifice in which, at least for part of the journey, was carrying the wood that was going to be used to sacrifice him? Jesus, right? And But as they get up there, Isaac says, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb For the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And you know how the story ends, whereas just before Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, God stops him. And there in the thicket is a ram who's ensnared in thorns. Again, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but what is placed on Jesus' head, crown of thorns, here's the sacrifice, the substitute for Isaac is entangled in thorns and is then sacrificed instead of Jesus. But Isaac is looking for the lamb, and Abraham tells him God will provide the lamb. Okay. Now you know. I assume the story of Exodus twelve. Flip there with me, please, real quick. Or quickly. Exodus twelve. Whether you read it yourself or watch Charlton Heston act it out, (laughs) we have the Passover. I'm going to read to you just verses 1 through 6 of this story. So this is, the, this is the moment in which God is going to now rescue his people from Egypt. He's going to take them out of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with the nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year old males without defect, and you may take them, the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. They then they are to take some of their blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamps. Anybody ever seen a lamb? Raise your hand if you've seen a lamb. This way I know nobody's dozed off on me. Okay. I hope nearly all of you have seen a lamb. If you've seen one in, in person, they are so cute. They're the cutest little things. They frolic around. They have these little personalities. They're wonderful little animals. Okay? Now, notice what God tells them to do. They take the lamb into their home on the 10th day of the month, and they're going to take care of it. When are they slaughtering it? You look on the 14th day of the month. Do you think anybody, and I know it's not like they didn't necessarily have pets as their enslaved in Egypt, but do you think, like, there was some little bit of attachment to this animal, a little bit, as they're taking care of it? There's this, I I, I wish I could find it, like, on YouTube, because Greg Steer, who runs Dare to Share Ministries, back when I was a a youth pastor, he did this illustration with these kids at this camp, where he is, like, 10, 12 kids, and they videoed this whole thing. Anyway, he gave them a lamb one day to play with. They, like, named it they're playing with it. They have a leash for it. They're having a good old time with it. They keep it overnight. The next morning, he's looking all somber in front of them. He, they come out with the lamb. He's like, give me the lamb. They're like, what? No, no, give me the lamb. He takes the lamb over. He pulls his big knife out from behind him. And he does not kill the lamb. Because okay. <laughs> you're all like, this took a turn. No. But they all freak out. Why? You're not going to kill that innocent animal, are you? We've named him Steve or whatever it was. I mean, he's this beautiful little... But his point was... Think of the emotional high to low that this group of teenagers had with this lamb. Now, I don't know if the families in Egypt felt that necessarily, but they took this lamb into their home. Then they had to slaughter it. Now, I know it's ancient times, but let's not overlook the fact that this was ugly and smelly and nasty work to do at that moment. And then they spread the blood on their doorframe. If I spread blood on my doorframe today, the neighbors will be highly alarmed, right? And so what we're doing is, other than I guess this weekend, some people might be doing that, but I don't want to get into that. Anyway, but what, what the purpose of this is for is it shows the Israelites the cost of their freedom. It shows them, and, and the thing is, is it's... Ugly work, but it shows them that an innocent being died for their freedom. And this goes on and on through the Old Testament, does it not? When you start reading the sacrifices that are done in the temple and for for forgiveness of sins and things like that, faith saved, but there's a visualization for people of what their sin cost every time an innocent animal died. And it was ugly and it was bloody. So then, going back to to John the Baptist, as he speaks of this is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the Jewish audience is transfixed with this character of Jesus. And he's pointing to them that our sin is ugly and animals can only help us so much. We need a perfect Human being to stand in our stead, the last Adam, the one who does not give into temptation the way that Adam gave into temptation, who will serve as our sacrifice for our sins. And it's ugly and it's nasty and it's sad, but it's necessary. And because of it, we then are declared righteous. And there's these amazing parallels. I didn't even read to you, like in Exodus 12, 46, one of the requirements when the lamb is slaughtered is that no bones of it may be broken. Look at Jesus when he goes to be crucified and they go to break the legs of those on the cross to ensure that they suffocate and die and they get to Jesus and he's already dead so they don't break his legs, which ensure that he fulfills the prophecy that no bone will be broken. What a fascinating parallel of the Passover lamb in Exodus and our Passover lamb on the cross where his legs, none of his body, his bones were broken. This theme continues on in the New Testament and one of the passages we read today was in Revelation chapter five and I just want to read this to you and then we'll move on to my, the last point here. But in Revelation chapter five, we see Jesus referred to again as the lamb. In verses 6 and verses 12. Verse 6 of Revelation 5 Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are for the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Looking down at verse 12, in a loud voice, those who were encircling the throne were crying out Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. And praise goes on again. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. John the Baptist's ministry was about making Jesus known. Making his sacrifice for our sins known. Not about gaining his own following so the last point i want to make to you before we we wrap this is i call it my notes transference verse 35 through 42 of of john chapter 1 so back in john chapter 1 verse 35 through 42 the next day john was there again with two of his disciples when he saw jesus passing by he said look the lamb of god When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, "'What do you want?' I so wanted to say, "'What do you want?' But I don't think he said it that way. (laughs) The tone of voice matters. "'What do you want?' "'They said, "'Rabbi,' which means teacher. "'Where are you staying?' "'Come,' he said, "'and you will see.' "'So they went and saw where he was staying, "'and they spent that day with him. "'It was about four in the afternoon. "'Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two "'who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus.' The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now ancient general definition of a disciple was that disciples in the ancient world were learners or followers in the first century they were quite literally people who followed or walked after a teacher and learned from both their words and the actions of their mentor so the first thing that i just find so admirable about john the baptist which is countercultural for his day and ours is he releases his disciples to jesus He is doing his job. He is making Jesus known as the Lamb, as the means for salvation. And he says, it is better for you to follow him than for you to follow me. Now, entertainment in ancient times was pretty limited compared to the options we have today. Somebody in here could potentially be checking their football scores while I'm talking right now. I haven't seen anybody do that. It's great. I appreciate that. That eyes are up here, not going, oh, no. So... And I'm a Denver Broncos fan, and they already won today, which is a miracle in and of itself, and that was great. It was already done before we got here. But I digress. Anyway, but entertainment options in ancient times were pretty limited, and one of the things that people were actually entertained by was following the, the, the wise sage or the teacher that was out in public teaching and presenting their wisdom, their knowledge, the message that they have. And John the Baptist seems to be very popular. So it was very countercultural for him to kind of release these disciples to Jesus, but he knew his mission wasn't to gain a following for himself, not to gain popularity for himself, but to point people to the way in which their eternal situation can be remedied, because that's more important than anything on this planet for us. So he's pointing people to Jesus, and so we see his disciples, presumably, we think John, the author of John, and Andrew... They start following Jesus, and I think Jesus in his question is, what do you want? Isn't like a, what do you guys want? Why are you following me? That's not it at all, right? But instead, it's a, what are your motives? What are you hoping for from why are you following me? Why have you walked away from your teacher to follow me? And at this point, they believe he's teacher, but they make a confession later to Peter that this is the Messiah, the anointed one. But John the Baptist is always about Jesus. In Matthew 3.11, he would say, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes the one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Mark 1.7, after me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps whose handles I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John 1.30, which we already read, this is the one I mean when I said, or I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. And in John 3.30, he says, I must, he must increase, but I must decrease. But Jesus asks Andrew and likely John, what are your motives? Why are you following me? So the question I have to ask myself even too is what are my motives in, follow, in, in, in my church attendance? Why am I here? Why am I following Jesus? Do I follow Jesus because my parents followed Jesus? Do I follow Jesus because my friends follow Jesus? Or have I truly wrestled with who Jesus is, as Scripture says him to be? And do I have faith in Jesus? Not because I hope that he will then answer all of my prayers, but I'm going to follow him and trust him, even if everything on this side of eternity is difficult. Because Jesus declares later in his teaching that, I promise you in this world you will have troubles, but take heart because I have overcome this world. Because sometimes we see teachers are going to promise you wealth and glory if you just follow Jesus. And it causes this crisis of faith because they follow Jesus, they think they're following Jesus, and they don't get that nice car, they don't get the bigger house, they don't get the better job, and their family still has trouble, and they're saying, well, wait a minute, I was promised this and I'm getting this. So my question for us is, why do you follow Jesus? My hope is, is because he is the one true king, the way, the truth, the life. And it's the way in which you come to the Father is through him. That is my hope, is why you follow Jesus. And that you trust him that when things go well, that is from him, and when things don't go well, he has not lost control or is not surprised by any of that. But he is still in control, and there is a purpose behind whatever struggle we face, no matter how hard or difficult it is to understand that. Then finally, we see... As John releases those disciples, what is the first thing they do? Take a look at the first thing Andrew does. Verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. What do we do with the information or news of Jesus Christ? Do we just kind of keep it to ourselves? I don't want people to think I'm weird. I don't want people to think I'm, insert whatever your fear is, of people thinking about you by making Jesus known. Well, I'm just going to make people know Jesus by how I act. That's how I'm going to do it. At some point, you've got to talk about it. At some point, you've got to speak about it. Otherwise, we can just love people right into hell if we don't ever bring them the message of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you have to do it every single moment you walk through the halls of work, but are you, are you moving in that direction to make him known? Not just in how you act, but how you speak. And you do that through just representing Jesus. You don't have to represent what any other teacher said about Jesus or your favorite book or the favorite cultural fad at the moment. You just point them to who Jesus truly is and what Jesus has said, which you get that information from where? Your Bible, right? You know this. And notice what Jesus does for us. I'm concluding with this this thought here. Jesus is brief but direct with Simon. He says, You are Simon, son of John, and you are called Cephas, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter, which was really a diagnosis of Peter's personality. One commentator says this, Simon, or Simeon, Acts fifteen fourteen, was the name of Jacob's second oldest son, who, with his brother Levi, had ruthlessly avenged the violation of their sister by one of the Canaanite princes. The rash and impulsive character of Simeon was mirrored by Simon, whose conduct, as reported by all the Gospels, reflects the same recklessness and tendency to violence, right? Remember when Jesus is arrested, what does Peter do? He goes like all samurai and tries to cut the head off of the guy that's going to arrest Jesus, right? You're like, well, how do you ever cut off the guy's ear? Because the guy went like this, thankfully. He ducked and lost only his ear, and Jesus replaced it, right? But, But Peter was going for a kill shot. He was trying to murder someone in that moment, okay? It's Peter's character, I should be saying Simon's character, much like the Old Testament Simeon. Jesus accepted Simon as he was, but promised that he should become Cephas, an Aramaic term which, like the Greek, Peter means rock. The development of Peter as recorded in this gospel demonstrates the progress of that change. Abram becomes Abraham, right? You have Saul becoming Paul, Simon becomes Peter. You, if you believe in Jesus Christ, are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Close with me with turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. Starting in verse 16, ending in verse 21. so that you are declared righteous before God. I know you sin, okay? How do you know that? Because I sin too. We all sin, right? But positionally before God, he views you as righteous because of what Christ has done on the cross. We ask for forgiveness. We repent as a continued recognition that our dependence upon our Savior. But you, your identity is not sinner. Your identity is saint because you have been freed in that bondage of sin so what do we do with that we like john the baptist like the disciples that went from john the baptist to jesus are now jesus's ambassadors we what does an ambassador do an ambassador of the united states living in france they're representing america in france you and i are ambassadors of the heavenly kingdom representing that kingdom in foreign land for now until the king returns what an amazing privilege that is To delight in our salvation and make it known to others that the Lamb has come and was slain for the sins of the world. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the working that you do in the lives of your people. I am completely and totally lost without you, Jesus. If it was up to me and me alone, I'd be doomed. I hope others in this room recognize that as well. But yet we have joy and we have peace because you have overcome not just the stresses and worries of this world, but you have overcome Satan himself. You have overcome death itself. And you have conquered sin where we could not. Lord, let us place our faith in you and you alone for our salvation, and then be your ambassadors as we go to our work and our school tomorrow. And in Jesus' name, amen.